You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 23rd of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. And welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Ahead on today's programme... What we've done, again, is send the clearest possible message that we will continue to degrade their ability to carry out these tasks. The US and the UK have launched fresh strikes on Houthi positions in Yemen. We'll get more detail. And... We'll hear how a group of Israelis stormed the Knesset, demanding the release of their relatives held in Gaza. Ahead of the election in Senegal next month, we'll find out why there are many concerns about the legitimacy of the vote. We'll have a roundup of business news from Bloomberg's Ewan Potts, and we'll celebrate individuals and organisations who've been championing independent bookshops. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. U.S. and British forces carried out strikes yesterday at eight different locations in Yemen with support from Australia, Bahrain, Canada and the Netherlands. They targeted Houthi underground storage sites as well as missile and surveillance capabilities used by the Iran-aligned group against Red Sea shipping. Well, Middle East correspondent Hannah McCarthy joins me now for more from Ramallah. Uh, Hannah, many thanks for coming on the briefing. Uh, The Houthis began attacking merchant vessels in November. They said they were reacting to Israel's military ground operation in Gaza. In in response, as we know, the US and the UK launched a wave of airstrikes against dozens of Houthi targets. That was on the 11th of January. Now, Monday's strike was the eighth time uh, that we've seen a, a big Western response. Did that differ in any way from previous hits? Well, the the strike that happened on Monday was only the second time that both the US and the UK have have jointly operated together. They jointly operated on the first attack uh, on the 11th of January, but since then it's been the US going it alone, uh, essentially. The UK, again, would be, you know, the junior partner in that alliance, uh, but they're definitely keen to show United Front uh, with the the US. Uh, And again, you know, what we're seeing also is, you know, this question of which countries are going to ally themselves with this action, which on one hand has, you know, some support from countries who say there has to be a strong military response uh, to these attacks that threaten global shipping lines. While there's also, you know, governments that are, you know, receiving criticism from factions of their public that are questioning why uh, Western countries are again striking a fragile country in the Middle East. Mm. How much damage have they inflicted on the Houthis? I mean, are they still able to launch attacks on vessels in the Red Sea? They have still been launching since the 11th of January, but we have seen uh, a decreasing number of attacks. Uh, and the US and the UK have said that they, they are confident they have degraded the capability of the Houthis uh, to attack commercial vessels. We also kind of understand that they've been targeting uh, anti-missile defences around um, airports in Yemen, which again could be a longer term strategy to kind of keep the Houthi attacks in, in check. Mm. Both the Pentagon and the British Foreign Secretary, David Cameron, have released statements after the strike. Did they say anything particularly noteworthy? I mean, I think they've just been defending. I think they're very um, conscious that they want to be saying that they're acting in defence, that they did not start this. This was not, you know, a, you know, a kind of Western 
around a Western intervention in the Middle East, they're saying, you know, this is in response to the Houthis attacks and that they need to have a response. Mm. And, and how much support do the Houthis have in Yemen? And is attacking craft in the Red Sea a, a popular move? So, I mean, the Houthis have been described as kind of military entrepreneurs. And, and I mean, they, they say that they are you know, uh, conducting these strikes um, against, you know, in solidarity, basically, with Gaza. And they will continue to conduct these strikes, um, you know, against ships that they say are associated with Israel. But, you know, they have attacked ships that aren't associated with Israel uh, until the war in Gaza stops. You know, this is a popular cause uh, among the public in much of the Middle East who, you know, you know, are very, you know, feel very um, emotionally attached to the Palestinian issue. At the same time, it does give it, you know, an opportunity to, you know, launch itself um, in the Middle East. You know, it's a platform for the Houthis to gain more legitimacy, uh, to, you know, show off what it says is, you know, the hypocrisy and double standards with which both Western countries and some other Arab countries, you know, treat Palestine. So, you know, I, I think we should be cautious about, you know, taking it at face value, this idea that they're simply doing this, you know, in solidarity with Gaza. Mm. If we can look to Israel itself now, uh, yesterday about 20 relatives of hostages being held in Gaza stormed the Knesset. Can you tell us what happened? Sure. So there was about a dozen of the hostage family members who broke into the Knesset Finance Committee hearing yesterday. Um, you know what we've seen, kind of, you know, since the beginning of the war, was you know family members being you know a bit more cautious about criticizing the government. You know, outright. You know, there was you know some family members. You know, there was kind of divisions. That some would were calling you know return the hostages at any cost. There was some recognition you know from other family members that you know. Israel needed to have a military campaign. But what we're seeing now, I think, is, you know, the cracks of desperation uh, revealing themselves. Uh, you know, there were some very angry responses from the family members who, you know, were basically, you know, calling for some of the members of the government to resign. Uh, you know, one uh, woman said she has three members in Gaza. She wants just at least one of them back alive. So very emotional statements. Mm. And does there appear to be any indication that Netanyahu is negotiating with Hamas for the release of the hostages? And, and indeed, is, is there hope still that they are alive? Yeah, you know, I think this is an interesting question. Like at the forefront of a lot of Israel diplomacy, you know, around the world from Israeli embassies around the world has been, you know, bring them back. They've really emphasised the hostages at the front of a lot of their international diplomacy. But what we're seeing in terms of the substance of what they're actually doing, you know, domestically and, you know, in terms of their outreach to, you know, Qatar and Hamas, you know, it doesn't seem to be a particularly fast-moving negotiation process. Uh, we know that Netanyahu told hostage family members yesterday that, you know, there wasn't really a viable uh, exchange deal at the moment. Uh, we are hearing, you know, these different proposals coming from Arab states and, you know, even Israel has said, uh, that they could do an exchange in return for a two-month ceasefire, which is, again, not an end to the war. Uh, so, again, I think there's a, considering, you know, we're almost four months into the war, I think it's a very worrying, you know, time for those families. Hannah, thank you very much indeed. That was Hannah McCarthy. Now, here's Laura Kramer with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. Donald Trump and Nikki Haley go head-to-head in New Hampshire today in the first primary vote to pick a Republican presidential candidate. Mr. Trump secured a landslide win in Iowa last week, which saw Florida Governor Ron DeSantis drop out of the race. 
Australia's former Prime Minister Scott Morrison has said he will quit politics at the end of February to work in the corporate sector. His resignation will trigger a by-election in his constituency of Cook in New South Wales. The Liberal Party politician says he plans to work on advisory roles focused on defence. And services on three of Japan's high-speed train lines have been suspended due to power outages. Two people were sent to hospital after an explosion near one of the trains stopped north of Tokyo. The operator said it may be some time before services resume. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thank you, Laura. The West African nation of Senegal heads to the polls on February the 25th, but there's much doubt that the election will be free and fair, as under President Miki Sall, authorities have been cracking down on the opposition, media and civil society for the last three years. Joining me on the line is Tara O'Connor, who's founder and executive director of Africa Risk Consulting, a pan-African consulting company. Tara, welcome back to the show. I wonder if you could tell us why this downward slide began in 2021 and how matters have progressed since then. Well, this is a pattern actually um, that we see that we've seen in Senegal that have that has really taken place since it started on the direction towards democracy, if you like. And this is particularly a pattern that we've actually seen with Macky Sall. Um, it's a pattern that he's actually used to actually eliminate uh, the, the two rival candidates to him in 2019. So it's it's kind of electoral business as usual in Senegal, unfortunately. But he's not running again. Macky Sall is not in, in line to be to be the leader. So what's behind this particular crackdown? No, he, he's not entitled. And that's probably the one good thing that he has actually stuck to. Uh, he promised that he would only run for two terms and he stuck to that commitment. But he's doing absolutely everything to ensure that his prime minister, Amadou Ba, is... Um, the winning candidate. And as such, he has actually managed to exclude two of the really um, viable presidential candidates. Uh, One is Usman Sonko, who has got great experience and is very popular, but who's actually um, in, you know, has been imprisoned and has seen his Supreme Court uh, judgment against him um, upheld. And I have to say there is the courts, unfortunately, are politic, a bit politically malleable. And the, cons- the electoral code stipulates that any person receiving any, even a suspended sentence is ineligible to run for election for five years. And the other main candidate is Karim Wad, who's the son of the former uh, president, the first uh, post-democracy uh, uh, president, Abdullah Wad. And Karim um, has been excluded on technical grounds, really, that he, they, he claims to have given up his dual citizenship as a French, uh, nas- dual French nationality. And this is disputed by the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I understand that 79 people submitted requests to the Constitutional Council to be presidential candidates. Only 20 survived the council's vetting process. Um, you, you've outlined some of the front runners, but I wonder if we could look at some of those people who seem to have just disappeared. Some of them have not even been charged, but we can't find them. Yes. Uh, you know, there are still some of the of the big players who have actually been prime ministers before and have actually served in various governments. But yes, there are a number 
of reasons why various people have been excluded. Not only is it enormously expensive, it's made ex enormously expensive, sort of like $45,000 equivalent to actually become a candidate. But then there have been an absolute host of um, minor um, administrative details that the Constitutional Court presides over and has used to basically exclude. There are now 20 candidates. Um, and, and again, this is all just designed to ensure that the Prime Minister Amadou Bar is the front runner, even though he's not popular, the power of incumbency will come in behind him. Mm. Uh, so are there any credible opposition leaders free to contest the elections? Well, I think there is uh, one, uh, one Idris Hasek, who has actually previously been a, uh, been, uh, also been a prime minister. But really, the front runners are, are now all, all, you know, discredited or, or now off the list. Mm. I mean, many say there is no way that this will be a legitimate election unless the authorities reverse course. Is that likely to happen? No, it's not. Um, I mean, I think there could be uh, room for movement um, and room for the actual other candidates supported by various opposition parties to come forward in a second round. In order to win outright in Senegal, you've got to win 50, over 50% 50 of the vote in a first round of voting. So there is still something to play for between the first and second round vote. And it is believed that it's not you know, Amadou Bar is not the most popular person. So there is still a bit to play for. Mm. What would be the major campaign issues? What do Senegalese care about right now? Well, I think in the past, it has actually been the manipulation of, of, of elections um, over the past. But actually, to give him his due, Macky Sall has actually been quite a good development um, uh, development um, president. You know, he has actually rolled out um, great infrastructure projects. He's also managed to bring huge energy projects to the country. They're beginning to get um, offshore gas, which will be exported uh, to very needy European markets uh, coming on stream over the next few months. So the country has developed, but uh, has developed quite considerably. But really what people are obviously concerned about in a post-COVID uh, environment is what everybody else is uh, in the world is concerned about, which is uh, cost of living uh, um, and health, social welfare, education and jobs. Um, um, but, you know, Senegal is one of West Africa's more stable um, and growing economies. Mm. And in terms of the, the elections themselves, how do those generally tend to work? Uh, and are there any uh, foreign observers? Is it usually conducted peacefully? So, well, I think where there has been where there has been great manipulation as this in the past, there have been very have, the elections have been disturbed. The most notable was when the former president Abdullahi Wad tried to extend his term for a third term in office, which is extremely unpopular. Um, and you, you know, the manipulation of elections is a hot political issue, and there have been there has been quite a lot of 
violence around that around around election time. But I know that um, the um, the uh, Senegalese authorities have opened up uh, to the actual election days scrutiny to the European Union, to electoral observers, and so on. But to some observers, they would see that this it's it's pretty much. Uh, the manipulation is already done. Tara, thank you very much indeed. That is Tara O'Connor there. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Gaston Glock, the reclusive Austrian engineer who invented one of the world's most popular pistols, died last month aged 94. His now iconic handgun developed in the early 1980s in response to a call from the Austrian military has since become standard issue in police and armed forces around the world. It's also a fixture of US pop culture through its depictions in Hollywood action movies and hip-hop songs. Monocle's Alexei Koryolov in Vienna looks at the cultural significance of this weapon in its native country. We are focusing on social history and economic history of Austria since the 19th century. We also host a big archive and as part of the things we are donated, we received this gun just a few months ago. It's a gun which was produced in Germany in 1918 until 1924. Uh, in the internet, it's described as uh, the Glock of the 1920s. I don't don't have the technical expertise yeah, to, judge to, that, yeah. to judge that. Florian Wenninger is head of the Institute for Historical Social Studies in Vienna. More from him later. But his description of a popular gun from a century ago as the Glock of its time is telling. In the world of guns, the 9mm semi-automatic Glock pistol has become a byword for mass-produced ubiquity, much like the Kalashnikov assault rifle. That's thanks to its mostly plastic body, ability to hold more ammunition than similar handguns, and budget-friendly price. This has also made it the weapon of choice for criminals and mass shooters, especially in the US. But what about the Glock's native country? Austria has one of the highest rates of civilian gun ownership in the world, at almost 1.5 million registered firearms in a population of just under 9 million. Sales boomed in the aftermath of a series of high-profile terror attacks in the mid-2010s, and more recently during the COVID pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 2015 was was Nizza. Terrorism came to Europe. People were much more talking about weapons. Immediate reactions from... The European Union was to change the weapon laws and to forbid a lot of things, which raises the counter-reaction. Okay, yeah, then I must do it now. And then so crisis um, raises the sales of, of guns. And the last eight years were a lot of crisis. Markus Schweiger is owner of Euroguns, a licensed firearms shop in Western Vienna. Of course, Glocks are very popular, especially for beginners, because... Persons who don't have a lot of experience with, with weapons only in Austria only know Glock from the, the pistols we have on, on, on stock. I think 30% of around are Glocks. What do you think personally? So we were talking before the interview about the person of Gaston Glock and this um, that he was very discreet, as you as you said, very secretive, <laughs> didn't speak to the press. Should arms manufacturers and arms dealers 
be more open or should they be like him? What is your opinion? It's everybody's decision. Um, I had made the decision that uh, to get the, the shooting sport more popular, you have to talk to people. You can't hide in, in a cellar. And um, the more you hide, the, the more people think you're doing something bad. Gaston Clark was one of the ones who didn't talk to the press, who made a very discreet business. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you shouldn't forget Everybody know, knew his name because the company was terribly f famous. He himself was discreet, but the company had had very, very, very excellent public relations. And many companies who manufacture weapons were established 100 years or longer ago. Glock is a company who was established in, in the 70s. And... 40 years later, everybody knew the name Clock. You could go to Brasilia, to South Africa, to wherever you wanted to and said Clock. Even the look of the Clock pistols, oh yeah, a Clock, yeah. And that was a perfect PR. If you do so good PR, you don't have to talk to the press anymore. It's, yeah. <laughs> While Glock is a private company, the nature of its business means that it is closely connected to and controlled by the Austrian government. And given its global brand recognition, the Austrians take pride in the achievements of their gun industry, and more broadly, in their gun culture, which, despite high ownership numbers, has not produced anything like the kind of street violence seen elsewhere in the world. A question for Florian Wenninger head of the Institute for Historical Social Studies. No, I don't think, um, at least not in such an extent as the Russian Kalashnikov hype. I, I never heard anyone boasting that he had the same nationality as Gaston Glock. <laughs> that might be different among army staff. And for them, Gaston Glock, of course, was an icon when it comes to ordinary Austrians. I remember people who bought hand grenades at the Mexico Platz here uh, for 50 shillings that was the, the tariff it wasn't uh, a big deal at the same time the glorification of guns as symbols for liberty for example or for self-protection um, isn't there uh, you wouldn't make a picture under the Christmas tree with some half automatic you wouldn't do it and also there's a broader acceptance of the the state being the only one who uses force legitimately. If someone wants to get a gun, he gets a gun, and there are obviously other reasons for a relatively peaceful life in Austria. So the living standard, the social security, and so on seem to explain more than the ability to, to get a gun. For Monaco in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. Alexei, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Briefing on Monaco Radio. And it's time now to get the day's business headlines with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts, who joins us from Dubai. Uh, Ewan, the Chinese government is keeping a careful eye on the stock market with a report that a big intervention could be on the way. Tell us more. 
Georgina, it may surprise those who haven't been following the internets of stock markets that China's market is really, really beaten up at the moment. It's the week that we saw the US S&P 500, the benchmark index in America, set a fresh record high yesterday. Stocks uh, across much of the world, particularly in Europe and the US, have really been on a tear for the final uh, three months of last year. There's been a huge amount of buying uh, on speculation that central banks are going to cut interest rates quickly uh, and buy a lot over the course of this year. But China, that is not the case. The sell-off has sent the benchmark CSI 300 to a five-year low this week. In all, more than $6 trillion have been wiped out from the market value of Chinese and Hong Kong stocks since the peak in 2021. And adding insult to injury, just overnight, we found out that India's stock market capitalization has now overtaken Hong Kong's for the first time ever. So India is now the world's number four stock market. Now, Bloomberg understands today the Chinese authorities are considering a package of measures to stabilize the stumping stock market. They're seeking to mobilize as a big number of this as much as $280 billion, mainly from the offshore accounts of Chinese state-owned enterprises as part of a stabilization fund. Now, we've had similar measures in the past, which effectively amounts to uh, buying stock to stop it going down quite so much. The hope is that this potential support package will be able to stem some of these declines, at least in the short term. But the worry is that state buying alone will have limited success in turning around market sentiment. A market sentiment from investors towards China at the moment is really incredibly negative. Um, it's important for the Xi government to calm the nation's retail investors. Many of them have been bruised by the protracted property slump that we've seen over recent years. And it's also seen as key to maintaining social stability, something we know is very important uh, for Beijing. So while many Western governments are prepared to overlook tanking stock markets, I think it's pretty clear that Beijing are really concerned about this and they're prepared to act. Let's look to America now and the US wind power sector, which is hoping this year will be better than last. Yeah, Georgina, the US wind farm operators have been reeling from a host of challenges, including inflation, high borrowing costs and supply chain problems. Really, the problems that have affected uh, many parts of industry, but they've been particularly bad for the wind industry. Now, last year, those obstacles limited uh, onshore installations in America to just seven gigawatts. That's the smallest amount of new wind energy built in the US since 2014. Now, just to put that into a bit of perspective, a gigawatt is about the power produced by a typical uh, traditional power plant. If you contrast that with 2020, the best year for installations, 17 gigawatts were built back in 2020. Now, wind farms, of course, are a crucial part of efforts to reduce global warming, reduce uh, CO2 emissions in the US. President Biden has set an ambitious target of delivering 100% clean electricity by 2035. But this downturn in construction of wind farms is making uh, reaching that ambitious target very much more difficult. Now, of course, you remember back in 2022, the US passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which included very generous tax credits for wind developers. Uh, that should have been an easy win, but there's been a lot of uncertainty about how the Act's credits will be applied and a lot of uh, uh, requirements over wages and supply chain. Uh, and of course, there is a long lag between concept and commissioning. Well, finally, big manufacturers uh, of wind turbine blades and towers are eagerly rubbing their hands. It does look like this year is going to be rather better we got the announcement recently of what's billed as the biggest clean energy project in US history, the Sunzia in New Mexico. Sounds like a solar farm, doesn't it? But it's actually mm. three and a half gigawatts of wind capacity. So that is going to be a big boost uh, for the industry. Lots of hope for the onshore wind industry this year. The offshore wind industry, that's not looking quite so good. Ewan, thank you very much indeed. That's Ewan Potts there. And you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. 
Today, we celebrate the Indie Champions Awards. This is a way to recognise individuals and organisations that have supported independent bookshops the most using bookshop.org, the online bookselling platform. Well, Nicole Vanderbilt is UK Managing Director of bookshop.org and she joins me now. Uh, Nicole, I've long been a champion of your excellent organisation. I wonder if you could tell everybody exactly what it is that you do. Yes, great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so we are in the business of supporting independent bookshops in the age of e-commerce, which means that we very much want everyone to go down to their independent bookshop when they can. But the realities of modern living is that loads of people are buying things on their phones. (laughs) And when they do that, we wanted to give them an opportunity to buy books in a way that would continue to support those indie bookshops so they would be there when they could go to visit. So it's basically a platform which any independent bookshop can join and people can buy just as if they were doing it from a global online retailer, but they're actually supporting a a, a small independent run shop. That's exactly right. We have 4 million books on the website, so we carry a lot more books than any physical bookshop could usually carry. And anytime you buy a book on our site, it supports independent bookshops. So tell us about the Indie Champion Awards. How do they work? Yeah, what we wanted to do was recognize people in the industry, publishers, authors, content creators, podcasters, um, for their support. You know, every time somebody goes to talk about a book online, they have a choice about where they link to for the purchase of that book. And so in the earlier days, we wanted to simply recognize those who are making the choice to share an indie link in addition to or instead of Amazon. But as the business has grown and our partnerships with so many great publishers and authors have grown, we've had even better examples to celebrate this year, um, including Lydia Davis, who's published a beautiful book of fiction this year and made the decision to not make it available for sale on Amazon. Um, And Michaela Loach, who has um, written an amazingly uh, prescient and and optimistic book called It's Not That Radical. And in her promotion of her book online, she also really implored her followers to think about how they're buying the book and made a really strong case for supporting independent businesses in doing so. Mm -hmm. Those were two of the category winners. There were another two, though. Yes, that's right. So we wanted to recognise... Um, content creators as well. So we wanted to recognize the Kids Book Curator, who is an um, online influencer who does children's book recommendations. And she is constantly championing indie bookshops and providing links to us. Um, and then we also recognized a podcaster of the year. Um, and this year that has been Literary Friction, who sadly this has been their last season um, as podcasters, but they religiously provide really great lists of all the titles they've discussed in the episodes. And so we wanted to recognize that activity mm-hmm. as well. So just more generally, t- talk to me about the landscape within the indie publishing or the indie bookshop world. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the BA has put out some numbers recently that show that there was an increase in independent bookshops opening last year, but there were also um, quite a few that closed. So I think what's great is that consumers are really realizing that where they spend their money matters and and so many readers and consumers have such great affection for independent bookshops that that support is really showing. But I think we continue to see that it's not easy to be an independent high street business and the book business is notoriously difficult. Um, And so sadly, there are some businesses that continue to really struggle and some are closing. Mm. And in terms of sort of local support, I mean, you you obviously provide this great platform so people can access books from anywhere. Are people still, though, turning up in person at their local bookshop? 
I mean, absolutely. I um, go visit bookshops pretty regularly so that we, you know, see them in their lovely stores and also to to meet them face to face. And I have to say, I'm constantly encouraged and surprised by, you know, the amount of footfall that a children's bookshop will get Tuesday at lunchtime, for example. <laughs> so I think there are people still really going in there to get, uh, you know, a really personal and lovely recommendation. We saw this loads in the run-up to Christmas where I think, you know, picking a book becomes even trickier to do it not for yourself. <laughs> mm. um, and there's nothing like uh, talking to an indie bookseller about, you know, what the right book is for the right person in your life. And can you do that on your platform too? We um, would never claim to be able to recreate that magical experience, but we approximate it in the form of lists. So bookshops and other types of partners like the Women's Prize and the Booker Prize and, in fact, the kids uh, curator uh, that I talked about earlier, they can all create lists. So they can all go in and a little bit like a Pinterest board, it's really easy to go um, browse on our site and add books to lists as they go. And those are what we feature on our homepage. We often feature them on our social channels. Uh, and those are a celebration of that exact curatorial expertise. Um, but it's still not the same as a conversation with a human. Well, it's a wonderful thing that you're doing. Congratulations to all the winners of the Indie Champions Awards. And many thanks to you, Nicole Vanderbilt of bookshop.org. Remember that website. That's where you should be buying your books. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Laura Kramer. Our studio manager was Christy O'Grady. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Listener.